when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Ben Smith, the former and founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, the co-founder and current editor-in-chief of Semaphore, and the author of a great new book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral, which is all about the rise and fall of the social platform age in media through the lens of Gawker Media and BuzzFeed, and in particular, their founders, Nick Denton and Jonah Peretti. I say the fall of the social platform age pretty literally. Just before Ben and I spoke, BuzzFeed actually shut down BuzzFeed News, saying it just wasn't making enough money. Facebook and the rest of the platforms are all in on vertical video, and the chaos at Twitter means a lot of baseline media industry assumptions are now up for grabs. Ben and I talked about all of this. Where do journalists go to build their brands now? Where does traffic to websites even come from anymore? It's about to be a pretty contentious election cycle. What's next for the media industry? I'll be honest, this one is pretty inside baseball for media nerds. Ben and I know each other. I am also an editor-in-chief. The Verge and Vox Media came up in the platform age. We fell into the weeds of this conversation pretty quickly, but it's a fun one because Ben and I don't actually always agree about how social media affected our industry, the world, or politics. And we obviously built The Verge in a very different way than BuzzFeed News or Gawker or anything else. You'll hear Ben say the web is basically over, in his opinion. He thinks it's there for marketing reasons, mostly, and his new publication, Semaphore, is a big bet on newsletters and events. I think the web is about to experience a season of immense change as platforms shift, people change their behaviors, and importantly, as Google search incorporates more and more AI. I have no idea who is right in this conversation. I have no idea what the future holds, but I know that I love talking to Ben about it. Of course, Ben and I also discussed Semaphore. Ben and his co-founder, Justin Smith, raised $25 million to launch a website, newsletters, and events covering the U.S. and sub-Saharan Africa with plans to expand into the rest of the world. I wanted to know what lessons from BuzzFeed Ben brought into Semaphore, and honestly, about how he's thinking about building an audience for his new publication instead of just trying to get traffic. 
This is a good one. The book is great too. I highly recommend it. Okay, Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of Semaphore. Here we go. Ben Smith, you are the co-founder of Semaphore. You're the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and the author of the new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. That's a great title. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me, Nila. I'm a longtime listener. I saw you at South by Southwest. We were talking about the book a little bit, and you said this thing to me, which has been ringing in my my head ever since. You said, it's a book about our childhoods, uh, which is really good. I think we both came up in a particular era of the internet, and it's more apt than ever because we are talking just a few days after BuzzFeed News was shut down. Do you see this as the end of a particular era of the internet? Yeah, I really do. And I think part of the reason I wanted to write the book was it felt, I guess, in 2020, 21, like this thing that I'd spent most of my career in was ending. Um, and, And I think as we're talking, you know, right after the shutdown of BuzzFeed News, which kind of broke my heart, and also after Tucker Carlson getting fired, it does feel like the end of an era of a kind of assault on the gatekeepers, right? This kind of wide open new digital media was a big part of it, but it was a massive social shift. And who knows what's next? But it, I do think this era that maybe began in the early aughts or arguably did does feel over and we're moving into some new place. So I'm really curious about that because I, I would actually break that into two pieces. And the book is actually about this class of media innovators, in particular, Jonah Peretti and Nick Denton, who started BuzzFeed and Gawker, respectively, in the early aughts, and their their ability to see what the internet would do to media and how to harvest attention. But it carries forward, I think, into the 2010s and the, the teens, where I was just putting my brain back there, where every day was a headline about what millennials would do to the world and how we needed to be ready for the wholesale change of this generation and whether they were going to kill the Olive Garden or whatever they were going to kill next. Do you think there's a direct through line there? Because I see that early period that the sort of late aughts when I started blogging is actually pretty different than the the 2010s. And I think you're you're drawing a pretty direct line to connect those things. I mean, there is a direct line. It is called time. Um, But like, (laughs) yeah, no, I agree with you. I think there was this, in the way I thought about the book was that there was sort of this, you know how whenever you get to like a scene, they tell you like, Mm -hmm. oh man, you should have been here a couple of years ago. Like that's really when it was good. I started a BuzzFeed in 2012 and, and had been in New York covering politics and adjacent to kind of Gawker world and copying a lot of what they did, but wasn't didn't socially connected to it since 2004. And I kind of think of that period, yeah, the first decade of the, of the millennium as the sort of prehistory of what then, as you say, in the 10s became this huge explosion that we're currently living in the aftermath of. And that explosion, in your estimation, and in the book, is the explosion of the social web, right? That's In yeah, particular, that's the thing that you see. Yes. Would you connect the sort of strange implosion of Twitter to that thesis that it's the end of the era because on top of BuzzFeed News shuttering, this dominant social media platform for journalists is undergoing some kind of cataclysmic change? Yeah. I mean, I just think if you think about your own media consumption and how you spend your time, you know, here we are on a podcast, which is a just yeah. very different kind of media than a 
viral, wide open Facebook post, a Twitter post. And I just think, you know, the, I mean, I think Facebook exists, but it has lost a lot of its sort of cultural power and relevance. It's not growing in the United States anymore, I don't think. I think it's has lost ground in the United States. And Twitter is appears to be kind of unraveling. Not that these things will totally go away, but it's interesting. So when we when we at BuzzFeed News when I started, the thesis in 2012 was that these social platforms were kind of what cable had been in the 80s. There were these new pipes to distribute content. And that there was an opportunity to create a CNN, a mm -hmm. MSNBC, a VH1, an ESPN, right, for these new pipes. And that's what we thought we were doing at BuzzFeed. And I think in some ways quite successfully did. I think that's true of a lot of what happened at Vox Media and, you know, and a bunch of other places too, certainly Gawker. But the pipes didn't endure. I mean, you know, like this, it did, it did not turn out that way. They were more like nightclubs or something where like people <laughs> hang out there for a while and then they get sick of it and they leave and you can't like, I mean, I think Elon, you know, I'm sure he's accelerating its demise, but you can't be like, oh, wait, guys, we like put in a new sound system, come back. Like, that's just not how it works. You go there because your friends are there and then, and then they get sick of it and go somewhere else. There's a pretty long history of tension between the people who make the content and the distributors, I mean, going back all the way to movie studios and movie theaters, yep. why do you think this time was different? Because usually once a, a type of distribution takes hold, it does last for a generation. Like that, that is just broadly true. And with social media, it does not seem to have persisted for more than five years. Yeah, well, I mean, it, 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 you know, and we're a little ahead of ourselves. Like, it persists. These are big companies yeah. making a lot of money with a lot of attention on them. And, but it, do, it does, it just, I think people got sick of them, right? I mean, that does <laughs> seem to be what happened. They persist, but they don't persist in terms of distributing other people's content, right? I mean, that's, that's really what you're talking about when you talk about traffic. That's well, the title of the book. And they would send, they would send millions upon millions of people to a web page, to the dress. Famously, is the example of BuzzFeed. Like the big BuzzFeed hit was the dress, the last good day on the internet is what people call it. It's in the book is that day. And it's Facebook said a lot of people are going to click this link to go to this website. And now they have just sort of reclaimed all that content and all that attention for themselves. Is that is that the change, do you think? No, I think there's a bigger change as people are moving away from these platforms toward I mean, particularly TikTok, which is a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's not as social. It's not mostly about communicating with your friends. Um, but also to Substacks and all sorts of other places. But, but you know, and the rise of video is part of it. The, you know, the toxicity of, I think, as with everything, there's a million reasons. But I do think the, the, the end of the era itself is pretty clear. You focus on Jonah and Nick in your book. They're the two main characters. They are rivals. In some moments, they are aligned. In other moments, they are fiercely at each other's throats. There's another sort of cast of characters from this era. There's another set of sites that AV Club or Slate or whatever it is. Why focus on those two to the exclusion of the others? Yeah, this is something I thought about a lot. And I'm sure, you know, and it's because, I mean, there's also, there's the whole, there's a whole thing called Vox Media and, and Jim <laughs> Bakoff, who wanders in and out of the book a bit and is, yeah. in some ways, I think, looks like the most successful entrepreneur of that moment. You hear that, Jim? But, um, it happened right here. Yeah, please promote this podcast widely. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and, right, and an infinity of other people. But I think yeah. what interested me about those two was that they were really personal rivals. They were there at the very beginning, and they were had people who had thought really deeply, maybe too deeply, maybe they thought too hard about what they were doing to be good businessmen. Because they were sort of they were pretty ideological and they had these really clear views about what 
digital media would and could do to culture, what it should do to culture. They cared a lot about culture and society and politics, sometimes too much and sometimes more than they cared about operating their businesses. But I think that to me is what makes them a really interesting place to tell a story that isn't really fundamentally to me about the kind of dollars and cents of the media business, although that runs through it and is ultimately what bring you know raises them up and brings them down but it is also really about culture and politics and the whole kind of like world that we're living in at the moment there's a lot of moments in the book where you point out that the beginnings of the alt-right and now what is just the normal far right of this country grew up in the incubators of gawker and buzzfeed and learned to use the tools and what really strikes me at that is they ended up running better businesses like breitbart appears to be a better business than buzzfeed right now why do you think that is? I think I don't buy the premise, but let me um okay. let me sort of tell the story a little because it was the, to yeah. me the most interesting part of the book. Actually, it's not it was sort of not where I planned to go with it, but as I'm sort of reporting out just like what was happening in this world that I'd been kind of aware of and adjacent to, but had never totally like dug into. It's like oh wow, there like at an early Buzzfeed, there's Chris Poole who created 4chan, like working out of the office, and there's Andrew Breitbart co-founding Huffington Post, and there's Steve Bannon coming through to check it out, and there's Benny Johnson and Baked Alaska a little later, and it's like oh, and I think. You know, there was a sense among people working in digital media, and it was just in a sense, it was just obvious that this was a progressive young person's space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and the election of Barack Obama, like, sort of seemed like its culmination. Obama, like, visits Facebook, because it's just, you know, he doesn't have to explain that it's a democratic company. It's just <laughs> obvious that Facebook is aligned with the Obama movement. Like, there's no question about it, because it's the internet, and the internet's for young progressive people. And then, you know, it turns out partly just because everybody else then got on the internet. You know, the kind of apogee of this digital media era isn't Obama's election, it's Trump's election, right? In the end? Yeah. I mean, it's a very... And, and and the people who thought that they were the main characters, like me, you know, <laughs> and you, turned out it was Andrew Breitbart yeah. and Steve Bannon were the main characters. I don't actually think... I, I kind of disagree on the business front, these places aren't particularly good businesses. Very hard to sell advertisements against anti-immigration screeds. I mean, I haven't seen the dollars. And they've also suffered massively from the decline of the social web. Like, I don't think Breitbart is, I wouldn't, if you have Breitbart shares, like, I'm not <laughs> sure you might, you might want to sell them. I mean, the sort of the consu- the right-wing media winner of that era, which is an, ad- who was also wandering around this world, but it's kind of an adjacent story is Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire, who converted that, sort of Facebook scale that he built in a kind of way that was in some ways learned from BuzzFeed and these other places to a subscription video service, which is what the business he now runs. I mean, that's really interesting to me because the from my perspective as uh, somebody who runs a tech publication, we were constantly watching these giant platforms just take in a fire hose of bad faith accusations about what they were recommending, what when they were recommending it, to whom they were recommending that content, what their moderation was like, and fully reacting to them without even taking a beat to understand if the accusations were bad faith or not. And it seems like BuzzFeed in particular, but Gawker to some extent, wasn't aware that the fickleness of the platform that they were experiencing was actually like the most enduring trait, particularly at Facebook. Right. I always imagine Mark Zuckerberg with a knob in his office and he would just turn it to you have a business. And at any moment he could turn it to you don't have a business. And yeah, it, I never in many sh- ways I was always just like terrified of that. 
I never saw it that technically. I mean, I do think yeah. that's part of it, but mostly Mark Zuckerberg had every member of the baby boom generation on his website. Yeah. And they and many of them really, really loved Donald Trump and loved everything to do with him. Some of them really hated immigrants. Like, I don't think that was artificial. We, there was a moment in 2015 when we were part of some trial that was obviously kind of promotional for Facebook's ad business, where they gave us access to like which political candidates in which states are being talked about most. It was supposed to be this fun little graphics feature, basically. <laughs> and every month it was just like Donald Trump and no one else. <laughs> like which ones are being, <laughs> number one is Donald Trump and nobody else registers. And yeah. I don't think, and I think there was a moment when people thought, oh, this is some technical bug of Facebook. I think now you look around the world and it's like, oh no, like that guy got elected in every country in the world. And that was not because of Facebook. That was, Facebook was amplifying, wrapped around it, in many ways, totally entangled with this new right-wing populism. But the, I think there were these very simple ideas about like it being caused by some knob that was being turned that I don't really think bears out when you look at what has happened in the world. I wonder about that. I, I don't think it was as simple as Mark Zuckerberg turning the knob to Donald Trump. But I do think that in a previous media environment that did not feed you exactly what you wanted all the time, that at least the the far-right populist movement would have been modulated, right? And maybe on cable news, it was modulated by Fox News exists, but also CNN and MSNBC exist. You can kind of switch between them pretty easily, but on a purely algorithmic platform like Facebook, you're getting this stuff, and then because you like it, you get more of it, and there exists no force in the platform to, to modulate your flow of information. And every time they try to introduce those features, a Breitbart shows up, or a Tucker Carlson shows up and accuses Mark Zuckerberg of being a socialist, and they back all the way down, and they don't actually step up to take that responsibility. And caught in the middle of it the responsibility the for sense You mean the responsibility for suppressing Donald Trump? No, I don't. The responsibility for creating a healthy media environment, right? That does not seem to be have been in Facebook's goal. Facebook's goal was make people engage and spend more time on the platform. And then on the other side of it, you have this set of actors that you describe in the book that were obsessed with traffic, right? And you were actually the modulating force at BuzzFeed because you're on BuzzFeed News. There's an anecdote in the book where uh, I think it's Steve Bannon says, "Why don't you go all in for Bernie Sanders? He's where the traffic is." And you're like, "But I'm an edit. I'm a newsman." Like, that's not my job. Yeah. And then there's a set of actors that doesn't give a shit. And they're like, just more Trump stuff. And that'll get the traffic. And at no point is there an adult who inserts their judgment into the mix. And every time a platform tries to do that, the firestorm of bad faith allegations shows up and they stop. See, I, I, I don't totally agree with you. Like, I think that you're sure. calling people you disagree with bad faith. And I think the plat and some of them are in bad faith and some of them are right wing. I the the post and, that and is I don't really mind. get why you think they believe they don't believe what they say. Like some do, some don't, and so you know. And I think the and and I think there was, and I do think Facebook was manipulated by people who were lying to them, and they were also just manipulated by ideologues, <laughs> right? Like, but yeah. but I guess yeah. I don't really buy. I don't totally buy the premise. I also just think you look at the right now, a world where Donald Trump is dominating the polling in the Republican primary, having been banned from Facebook, thrown off Twitter. And we are sort of running an experiment where Donald Trump is not on social media. Do people still like Donald Trump? Yeah, Republican voters love Donald Trump. They like what he stands for. They like his message. They like his style of presentation. That was not fundamentally a technical feature of social media. 
That's true. I, I'm not saying and I think, that- No, but I think that's a, like, I'm not sure I would have been so confident in saying that five years ago. Like, I do think you look at the world now in which these right-wing populist movements, you know, have won some national elections, have lost some, but are proving pretty enduring. And, and I think it's hard to say that was, I mean, I just think, you know, whatever, history always has a million causes. It's hard to <laughs> untangle this stuff. But I, I just, anyway, we didn't we don't have to argue about it. No, I mean, that's but I do hear. think, but I do think those guys channeled and inherited the this energy of social media and took advantage both of like technical features of Twitter and Facebook and right and pushed these often you know in their hearts not pro Trump people running the platforms to like back off, um, but uh, you know but they and, and they also then just actually appealed to lots of Americans who were yeah. on the platforms. The post that's on my mind as we have this conversation is, uh, it's, it's not in the book, but it's a very famous Gawker Media post from Gizmodo. Uh, Facebook is suppressing conservative news. And it was about like one box on the right rail of desktop Facebook of trending topics and some emails where they were like, this is too shitty. Like put some nice stuff in here. And that blew up into a news cycle where Facebook took humans out of the loop. Yep. Right. It's that kind of, right. And that was, was an immediate bad faith reaction. And it's, and, and there is just this, deep complexity of this, which is that conservative news is mostly commentary and media criticism. There is right. not a right-wing thing like the New York Times that has thousands of reporters gathering information, presenting it factually. And these platforms try to, like the operators of these platforms want to have an abstract sort of schematic view of the world. And the world's messy and complex and doesn't match <laughs> it. And, and I do think that, I think that's a great example of something where like, you know, are, were these operators of platforms disdainful of people on the right and their politics? Like, sure, yes. But did this change? You're right. Did this this thing unveiled Earth by the Gizmodo Post have any impact on the world? No. And actually, when you look back, this to me also is sort of maddening. You look back at the history of the media coverage of social media. And this is partly because they were such black boxes. They were so yeah. untrans- deliberately untransparent. Like conservative anxiety about the platforms being biased against them, which may or may not have been true in other places, gets totally channeled into this one set of claims that is actually nonsense. And I would say progressive anxiety and democratic anxiety about Donald Trump having been stolen the election through Facebook gets channeled into the Cambridge Analytica story, which is nonsense also. Yeah. Wait, explain to people why you think Cambridge Analytica is nonsense. I mean, Cambridge Analytica was this scammy company that went around telling people it could use psychographic profiling on Facebook to manipulate voters into voting for them. And then did not do that. There was a very detailed, extensive British government report that looked into it and found that this was not true. They did access data they shouldn't have accessed. They had, Facebook did leak out all sorts of personal information it shouldn't have leaked out. But these particular guys did not then use it to help Donald Trump get elected. And it was widely believed that they did. So the, the scandal there was the Facebook leaking data. The thing yes. that made the scandal resonate was, did this get Donald Trump elected? The reason people cared was Donald Trump, yeah. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. 
Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Ben Smith. We were just talking about Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal. The term there that always grabs me is the promise of advertising on these platforms is that it is effective, right? That you can yes. you can you can tell the the platform, you can tell Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whoever, I want this set of consumers at this age in this location who have been in these places before, and I want to sell them Q-tips and go find them, and the Q-tips will sell more Q-tips than ever before. And to whatever extent that has been the past of internet advertising is very much still the present of internet yep. advertising unclear about the future due to Apple's policies, but it's the world we live in. I don't know if that promise is held true. I don't know if that advertising is effective. I don't know if people like it. But what strikes me is that when you write about BuzzFeed and Gawker, companies that were built to harvest attention, they did not build those systems, right? BuzzFeed in particular built this like branded content apparatus that seemed to cut against the entire idea of the future of advertising that the platforms themselves saw. Where do you think that disconnect came from? Well, I mean, there were different, you know, I think there were a series of different mistakes and problems. I mean, one was that, you know, <laughs> Gawker, I think, you know, when they, in 2003, they launched this like kind of pioneering weird little display advertising product that barely worked and they charged $9 CPMs. And, you know, on the theory, like, this is like this weird little launch product, but like, obviously the prices are going to go up when, when when we get good at this and, we, and we'll have more scale and higher prices. It's going to be a great business. $9 CPM today is a pretty good CPM. The prices yeah. went down and they had this idea that they discovered a kind of like digital commodity, a digital oil, and that if they could control it, they'd make a lot of money. But, you know, the point of commodities is they are scarce. Traffic was not scarce. It was infinite. Ultimately, that model, you know, these, all the digital publishers got kind of ground down by the falling ad rates or sort of flatlined ad rates. On the branded content side, I mean, I think what BuzzFeed was selling initially was essentially like there are these new pipes and we are the experts at making content for them. And so it made sense to say, you know, we are MTV producing, you know, or maybe it's the wrong metaphor, we're CNN broadcasting news, and we're an ad agency that makes television commercials because that's a new form. What's a television commercial on social media like this? And and there are these neutral pipes that we can pass them through. And maybe they'll take a tax. I think it turned out the tax is 100%. <laughs> right. Like, why would Facebook ever pay anyone else to make content for Facebook when its own users are making it for free? I mean, I think the argument, which isn't crazy, it's not how, why would they pay anyone? It's like, why would they allow people why would they permit people to make money on their platform, make content, and make money from it on the platform? Well, because they want to continue to be around because there's quality content and not be dominated by low-quality garbage while people migrate over to Netflix, which is, in fact, what happened. Like, I think Facebook made a mistake. I think if they had created something that where the, where the quality steadily went up, and they managed to do it, they tried at times. They tried commissioning shows. They weren't good at it. 
But I don't think if you look at Facebook's commitment to user-generated content and you look at where the blue app is now, you say like, wow, they, this, is, this all worked out perfectly and exactly as they hoped. I don't know. I mean, I think they tried really hard at various times to become Netflix. They failed at it, but they tried because it was good business. I often think these platforms try because any other platform is doing anything. And they're more terrified of each other, more competitive with each other than anyone gives them credit for. Oh, yeah. And you see, I don't know, Facebook does instant articles. So Apple does Apple News. So Google does AMP. And suddenly the entire web has been colonized by proprietary formats. The greater, to me, the great original sin of this whole era is a, is Facebook seeing Twitter's little baby Twitter is growing at a rate where if you extend the line, you know, <laughs> it passes Facebook. And, and what does Twitter have? It is real-time news. And they're like, all yeah. right, let's get into the news business. And Facebook's move to suddenly just like turn that knob toward links to outside websites like ours to traffic was actually driven, it turns out, internally by a feeling of competition with Twitter. And I, I, you know, and they probably did it. They probably overdid it, don't you think? (laughs) I feel like if anyone had just like come around to publishers and said, does Twitter drive any traffic to you? They would have quickly realized the answer is no. And it has never been yes. And I think that's actually one of the more interesting things that's happening with Twitter today is most publishers have wanted their reporters off of Twitter for some time because it's distracting and chaotic and all kinds of bad incentives. And then the platform kind of dying is like, well, we lost nothing. People weren't even clicking on the links. They were reacting to the headlines or whatever anyone else was sharing and then our reporters were getting harassed. But the journalists, well, a lot of journalists got a lot of clout, right? Like there was value yeah. to, there was a ton of value to individual journalists, which in, to me, actually, I, I would argue ultimately does accrue to their employers. A lot of employers would not agree with that, obviously. Yeah, I think the default answer to every question in media in the platform era was Twitter, actually. It was not Facebook. It was not Google Search, which I do want to talk about a little bit. But the default answer to every problem has been Twitter, right? Where is the candidate going to like cultural release? problems. To, to like, why do we problem. hate each other? Well, Why no, are our I mean, conversations incomprehensible to anyone yeah. who is not on Twitter? Uh, my daughter turned five the other day into a group of screaming children at her birthday party. I said a Twitter joke and I was like, what is wrong with my brain? It's bad. But I, I mean, like literally the nuts and bolts of making the news, the answers to all the questions were Twitter. Where do the candidates release the statements? Where do the reporters keep their public notebook? If the site is down, where do we publish news? The where answer is witnesses to a news event tell you what they're saying. Yeah. I think the reason that we all picked Twitter is because it was the most real time, even though we accrued the least value in return from it. Whereas over-indexing on Facebook was a very corporate thing to do. Over-indexing on search is a very corporate thing to do because the accountants can see, well, if we invest in this platform, we will get this many clicks back and those clicks are worth it to us. Whereas investing in Twitter has always been an emotional thing to do or a long-term thing to do because there's an immediate feedback mechanism from other people, well, even if the business model hasn't been there. And, and Twitter is where brands get built. And yeah. branding and media is important, too. I would what say. do you think happens when the default answer isn't Twitter anymore? It's just a more complicated world. Like, we're just obviously already in a more splintered, more complicated world where I think, again, I don't think these are technical changes. I think people got sick of the notion that you participate in this crazy giant space where everyone is screaming at the top of their lungs about what they think and yelling at you for some shocking reason we got tired of that (laughs) and wanted to go to smaller more private spaces where they mostly talk to like-minded people which is how 
for the previous, you know, several millennia of human history, people had mostly communicated. <laughs> when the answer isn't Twitter anymore, where do you think media brands get built? I mean, it's a lot of different places, but ultimately you've got to, it's got to, it's going to be much more, and this is, you know, I think widely agreed in kind of one-to-one connections with people, whether through email at events, I think the web, social media, Twitter are still good places to like say, Hey, this is what we're doing. Hello. Mar- which is essentially marketing by the way. And, it, and it's, I mean, this is one of the, to me, it's sort of galling, but I remember watching the, how the way the studios use social media, the Hollywood studios, and they always just viewed it as like it was in the marketing department and it was just some random little marketing spend for them or whatever. And they never took it seriously. And I always found that kind of annoying as someone for whom, no, this is our distribution. I mean, like, <laughs> it's not marketing. But in the end, I think what's left of the social platforms for news brands is marketing. In fact, you we're, that- you know, we advertise on Twitter. I want to ask you about the Semaphore Twitter ads. We'll come to Semaphore in a minute uh, and how you're building that organization. But I just want to stay focused on, on BuzzFeed News and Gawker for one more minute here. Yeah, BuzzFeed was really built to be a distributed brand, right? It was built for every article to travel all on its lonesome throughout the various pipes of social media, paid or not, and convey a sense of generational taste, a sense of knowingness about the internet, to, to basically be a like you said, like a CNN or an MTV for a new generation, that unbundling of the brand was the innovation, right? We're going to start with social media distribution at the core of the business. It also appears to have been BuzzFeed News's undoing because you can't ship your business model for news across the internet that way. You're, the news department is not going to make branded content. Was there ever a turn inside of BuzzFeed where people said, whoa, we got to we got to back this up. We got to build a direct audience to our homepage. We got to put an app on people's phones, whatever it is. Yes. To to avoid the dependency on the social platforms. Yeah, we were totally aware of the dependency. I mean, I'm sure if you look at investor decks from the beginning, I yeah. mean, it was there, but it's hard to sort of play away from your strength. And the, the the scale and the audience were so huge there. And you know, they built a pretty sizable. We built a pretty sizable email newsletter. We launched we launched and folded an app, quite good app. Stacy Maria Schmael built. You know, all of the things you mentioned, we launched a new homepage and invested in trying to get people there, but it was hard to draw people to homepages in the kind of mid-2010s, but hard hard to, while you're simultaneously just riding the tide, to attempt yeah. to swim against it. Should have tried harder. It turned out the scale at which BuzzFeed News was operating, I mean, you know, which we did amazing work and an enormous amount of ultimately kind of venture capital went to really, I think, good independent journalism that I'm really proud of. But I think what Karolina Vitslaviak, the editor-in-chief at the end, was trying to do was to run a much smaller organization that was very commercially sensitive and trying to make money. And she was really making progress there, and they kind of ran out of time. Right, because the stock price is very low and the investors are pretty mad, right? Yeah, for just normal commercial reasons. Do you ever have a sense of who the BuzzFeed audience was? One of the things that really jumped out at me as I read the book is Gawker is obsessed with traffic, but Gawker to this day is a brand that transcends its own current form. Like I hear people talk about old Gawker all the time and it's because I work in the media and like every now and again, someone will wistfully say, I wish Gawker was still around to this story. Yeah. And usually what they mean is I wish someone was like a lot meaner than I'm being right yes. now or had license to be meaner than I'm being right now. But the brand endured, it stood for something. They knew who it's, their audience was. They, they played directly to that audience and they still managed to get traffic. 
BuzzFeed was a, a lot more diffuse in, in my view. It was more diffuse and, and, and there were elements of it that sort of pulled away from having a single audience, right? Like there was a kind of content that was, you know, things you knew if you grew up Persian in New Jersey. Yeah. That would get like 600,000 views because 600,000 <laughs> people grew up in New Jersey. Samir, who wrote it, like totally nailed that experience and people loved it. But you're right, that sort of cuts against that. But actually, we did know who our audience was. I mean, it was, you know, the core audience was women in their, you know, depending when you'd ask, 20s, you know, 30s, millennial women, college educated, big cities. Like that's the sort of core, not big, you know, cities. Like that's sort of the, you know, and, and many, many other people because at scale, was sort of reaching everyone. But that was the core of it. I think actually sort of, I think at our best, a lot of the hard journalism also really served and was sort of like thinking about that demographic. Like our first really huge investigation that I'm still really proud of was about women in Oklahoma who were whose horrible stories, partners had, had situations where, where their romantic partner had killed their child. The partner pled guilty. The woman pled innocent. The partner would get two years and the woman would get 30. I mean, it was always abused, abused, it was a terrible story. And, you know, the story wound up with a woman getting out of jail. It also was widely read by our audience in a way that was powerful. The Stanford rape letter, if you remember that, was one of the really powerful things we published. A lot of Katie Baker's work, um, Nishida Jha's work, sort of investigations, there's an investigation of massage, of massage envy that I'm pretty proud of. Like, I think we tried and I think really did not always succeed and sometimes really failed to kind of like steer our coverage toward the stuff that our audience cared about. And, and the other thing our audience cared about was the internet. And so a yeah. lot of our coverage, Katie Natopoulos, Ryan Broderick's work, many others, was about the internet itself and about the, the online conversation being very far ahead of that. And so then that was a big chunk of our audience too, just terminally online people who were really interested in what was happening on the internet. The Virgin Newsroom experienced many moments of just unbridled envy at the work uh, covering the internet that Katie and Ryan and others did there. Charlie Warzel covering the far right, uh, his Alex Jones profile, so far ahead of the curve. Yeah. And and I mean, I think, you know, you, this is the stuff you do not win prizes for because the prize juries are just like confused about it. But like Craig Silverman, you know, broke all these stories. These are the the kind of defining Macedonian teenager misinformation stories that would win Pulitzers like four years later once like the Pulitzer boards <laughs> the times could kind of like figure out what's the times would do it a few years later. And in a way, the Pulitzer would be like, oh, this is what those people were talking about. But like that was stuff that we were really proud of. That sense of identity, right? You know who your audience is, but it's mostly coming at you through social media. Was there ever a worry that like, this is the audience social media wants us to have? And I will give you a very specific example. Hmm. Uh, we publish to YouTube. We do our very best to make content for people who love tech. On our website, our audience is like closer to 50-50 than not. Maybe it's like 60-40 and, and a bad day at 70-30. YouTube has decided that only men like tech and our audience is 90-10. And it's not for a lack of trying. It's not for us programming it for that audience. It's just that platform has decided that our audience will be 90-10, that they're going to recommend our tech content to mostly men, particularly young men. And that's where our audience will be. And I worry about that feedback loop constantly, right? That I can't convince YouTube, even with my own data on our own site, people come to us directly that the audience is much bigger than what the YouTube algorithm has decided. But you think YouTube is wrong about who is watching your videos to completion on YouTube? I think YouTube is incorrectly recommending our, our videos to people. I think it is decided that some subset of the audience is not interested in technology and thus will not show our content to them algorithmically. I think when we look at our own site and we see who's interested in our own work 
and we take we do the surveys, the more qualitative surveys of our of our audience, we find that it's a lot closer. That's a feedback loop that I, I constantly worry about, right? If you program to an algorithmic audience, you are programming to an algorithm. You're not actually programming to people. But the algorithms are themselves responding to the feedback, maybe imperfectly, from people. Like I guess I. I and these are different ways of thinking about it. I, I've always thought that people, not that you're wrong, not that the algorithms can't go wildly haywire and really mess things up for everyone, or really more, maybe there are lots of women for whom they'd like your videos, but it's not the first thing they would like. It's not the most sticky thing. <laughs> and the algorithm is always feeds you the most sticky thing and kind of narrows and narrows and narrows your perceptions of the world. And I agree that those are Real issues, but I also I don't know. I've always thought that one of the sort of misreadings of social media was that its problems were fundamentally technical rather than fundamentally about human nature. The follow up question there is: when you were thinking about programming BuzzFeed and how to build a more loyal audience, and then eventually when Jonah was thinking about how to pay for it, the idea that you didn't have an audience, you only had what Facebook would send you, is sort of pervasive in the end state of BuzzFeed that we see today. I look at BuzzFeed.com today and I see the absence of taste. Like I see the knob has been turned all the way towards whatever the algorithm wants. It's funny. It's interesting you say that because this was a running argument that I would have with my very brilliant colleagues, Jonah and Dow Wynn, who's, who's a, who was sort of running product and tech and entertainment at various points. Um, you know, who I think where I would, where I have very strong taste and they would say like, well, you look at the numbers, you're wrong. <laughs> Um, and I think, you know, the sort of DNA of internet culture is to kind of reject tastemakers and to reject elite taste. And I think BuzzFeed totally embraces that. I agree with you, but I don't think that's new. Do you think that's what led to its its demise here? No, I think we were building for a social media ecosystem that has kind of declined. It's, you know, this was a, the, in the biggest picture, it's a story about an ecosystem company whose ecosystem turns away from it. Um, but the point was to build a media brand. The reason I'm pushing on this is maybe it's, it's self-serving, right? Like, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we, obviously, The Verge is a no, but I think you're right. Like, it turn it obviously it turns out that the social networks were not the cable pipes. Programming yeah. for them did not work. Building a lo a brand loyal audience who loves you and is connected to you and will follow you across platform is incredibly is the name of the game right now. You know, and and you know the world keeps changing, distribution keeps changing. That's obviously where where things have landed. The last pipe that exists for any of these companies is search. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah, I want to hear I what you have to say. But I think you you have much more interesting and sophisticated. I mean, I have an intuition <laughs> that search is like the next domino. Yeah, um, and I think that's and Google, which seemed like this unchallengeable, unchallenged feature of the universe, suddenly feels very old and broken. Um, you have, but, but Nila, you have an actual sophisticated point of view on this. What the hell is going on? <laughs> I think most media companies are addicted to search because it's the last reliable source of traffic. If you look at the ecosystem of companies that came up alongside Gawker and BuzzFeed, and you look at their content, you look at their pages, most of them have become something like demand media companies, right? They look at Google trends all day long and they feed the beast. Maybe the most famous example of this recently is CNET, which is laying off reporters and investing heavily in AI to write answers to Google queries. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that's good or bad for Google. I, I know it's bad for CNET's reporters. I don't know if it's a good business decision for CNET and the company that holds it. BuzzFeed has so far resisted this a little bit. The company that owns Gawker now has definitely not resisted this at all. 
Do you think there's a business left there? Do you think that's the, the next thing to go as the platform companies wither as the platform era ends? I trust you when you say it is. I mean, I, I do think that the combination of the ability of AI to churn these things out in a much more personalized way, among other things, you know, you, they, they can make a million of them, one for each of a million people. Yeah. And, and I want to separate sort of original. I mean, there are a lot of folks doing, you know, quite good hard work, getting paid not that much, cranking out several posts a day that sort of present expertise about a thing. But it's hard to have expertise in all those things. And so those things are, those are not the most thoughtful, well-written posts. And Wikipedia, I would say, is usually better yeah. than your average kind of SEO farm content. We have to take one more quick break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with Ben Smith. We've been talking about Ben's new book, Traffic, but he's also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of a news organization called Semaphore. Well, this brings me to Semaphore. So you're, you're building Semaphore now. Uh, it's a new media company. You started with Justin Smith, ex-Bloomberg. You've hired a bunch of fancy reporters. You're sending out news. So fancy. Saying, if you only saw the office I was sitting in upstairs <laughs> from an Italian restaurant on Mulberry Street. I mean – you're going to romanticize that to the nth degree when you write the next book about the Semaphore era. Don't even don't play me for one minute. The Mulberry <laughs> Street office above the Italian restaurant, if if all goes well, will become legendary. But you've put a bunch of money in at the top, right? You've you've hired great people. Uh, what's the plan? How are you going to get traffic? It's not the social platforms. It doesn't seem like it's going to be search. You know, email is the most important platform for us for sure, and. Events are a, are a huge part of our business, and, and of how we see ourselves both, gen, you know, creating interesting moments to go out into the world and connecting with people. I mean, it's a totally different world than the one that we were living in ten years ago. That's a much more expensive world, right? Like every newsletter subscriber, you got to go pay to market and find your cost of customer acquisition much be high. Well, and the, we certainly do marketing to reach people, but also you break a big story. 
I mean, journal, you know, the jur- journalism is, re- is really is better than paid marketing. Big yeah. scoops are better, you know, are the best way to find people. We've had a great week in that regard with the, all this Tucker Carlson coverage. I mean, I actually find it pretty satisfying, but it's, it is a different moment. How is, I, these are the decoder questions now. Welcome. You made a pretty huge decision at BuzzFeed News to publish the Steele dossier. You talk about this extensively in the book. This leads into the classic decoder question. You've had all these experiences. You've made some monumental decisions. You're now at Senate 4. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? I guess I think of journalism much more as a trade than as a sort of abstract theoretical framework. In each situation, the dossier is a great example, is so different. Like in the big abstract, like should people see a document that's being talked about? Like, I don't know. By whom exactly? Well, two presidents of the United States. Okay. And then also see, like, each situation is so distinct. And I think a lot of, I make a lot of distinct decisions on instinct. But I hope I've had a lot of experience that, that informs that. It's great to actually ask a journalist this question. I ask a CEO that question every week and I get a different 10,000 word response and you're like, it's my gut. And that's great because honestly, that's how I do it too. You're the co-founder of the place. You're also the editor-in-chief. Yes. How is Semaphore structured beyond that? Internally. I mean, I I run the newsroom uh, and Justin runs the business side. And that, I mean, it's it's a pretty traditional structure. And actually, one of the things I think I learned about myself at BuzzFeed is that I'm not a commercial business. I'm not a business operator. I'm a journalist. <laughs> I know my limits. How many people are, are on either side there? Somewhere in the ballpark of 30 on each side, maybe 35 journalists, 25 commercial. And then on the journalism side, how are you? How is that all structured? You, you know, we're built primarily around verticals, each built around a journalist or two, mostly one. And I do think part of our thesis that is different, but I think is has to do with how the world is organized. It's just that people are gonna are more likely to connect to an individual journalist than they are to kind of, to a brand. And so we're certainly, you know, we're able to hire, you know, to, to my mind, the best Wall Street reporter from the Wall Street Journal, brilliant tech reporter from the Washington Post, great political journalists, and you know, try to put them out into the world to some degree and have people connect with them. A traditional I always thought the BuzzFeed newsroom was for all the great reporting and the insight and sort of being ahead of the curve on what to cover, it did have a pretty traditional kind of hierarchy there. Yeah. Right. It looked more like a newspaper than anything. And that was because there was a bunch of venture money pumped into it and you got to spend all that money. You're going to borrow an existing structure, but you've lived through that now. Is that still the same structure you're trying to grow into? This thing about reporters being bigger than the brand seems very key. I mean, I think, I do think that, you know, the words like influencer and personal brand, like make a lot of journalists throw up in their mouths, you know, like it's not our jargon, but, and and it also, you know, if you look at, for instance, television news, where that really is the structure, it can be create really toxic cultures, star systems. That said, I do think that readers are feeling very connected to individuals in this moment, partly because it's so hard to know who to trust and what to trust. And these faceless institutions no longer look like monoliths. You can just see that they're just a bunch of idiots like everybody else. (laughs) And so you kind of want to know which idiot is your idiot. And so, I mean, I think my deal with the reporters that I'm hiring is – you know, is that we're going to try to give you the best of both worlds. Like we, and, and for, this is the deal with the audience too. Like, you know, who's writing the story and the journalist is putting their reporting out into the world. They're putting their opinion on the reporting out in the world in a very transparent way here. You know, that's sort of how our stories are structured. Here's, here's the news. Here's what I think about it. Here's somebody who disagrees with me, but good reporters want a great editor. 
they want great colleagues. They want a great newsroom. And and I think there's a reason. There are people breaking news on Substack, but it's not really what Substack is for. Like, it's pretty hard to be out there on Substack, like getting scoops. And you don't see yeah. a lot of that. And so I think for this, for a kind of hard news reporter who can break news and can kind of help you understand what it means too, we're trying to build the sort of ideal best of both worlds for them and for, for, audiences, for an audience who wants them. I do think the other thing that I'm very focused on is that in this moment of like feeling just so overwhelmed that there's a real opportunity to curate and distill and aggregate in a way that has kind of gone out of fashion. This was actually yeah. something very popular back in the day. And so like our morning newsletter flagship, which is run by Prashant Rao and Tom Chivers and the team out of London, you know, is I think like a very high order version of that. Do you think about those formats as being old or new? It's all, I mean, I remember when somebody told me that we'd invented the list. I was like, I think maybe the Ten Commandments was the first one, but there's probably one before that. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not, um, we're not doing genetic engineering here. But do you think that that format is new for a new audience? I, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do. Yes, I do think that that format is trying to solve the problem of the audience right now. Which is just that they face this kind of uncanny valley of like, who is talking to me? Do they know this stuff or are they just guessing? I mean, honestly, what is driving me most crazy in this regard right now is the Tucker Carlson coverage. It's like, it's like, are you guessing? Is this just the Fox press office lying to you? Is this a real source or are you wish casting? I have no idea. <laughs> right. Because no, actually, if you read all those reports, it's a, it's the, the sourcing is hazy in all of them. Yeah. Right? Even to the point where if you were moderately informed, you wouldn't be able to guess. You're trying to solve this with what I have come to call the semiformat. Uh, we like semiform, but I'll take it. Semiform is good, right? Where you, you lay out, okay, this is, these are the facts. Here's Max's view. Max Tanny, I read the most. Here's, here's the view from the reporter. Here's the other side. Just editor to editor. Sometimes I look at this format. I'm like, this format is actively fighting against the story. You've launched it. You've been in it for a minute. Have you thought about evolving it? Are you committed to it? What's, what's happening there? We're evolving it all the time and sort of tweaking it and improving it and adding sections. Because as you say, you don't want to have the format fight the story. And in fact, you know, many like every format finds stories that it that it fights. I, I think that like the one that really fights stories these days is the news is the traditional New York Times article. Yeah. Where it's like, here is a statement of facts. Here is some analysis that we're not sure for, sure from whom. Here is a <laughs> quote that restates the analysis, which is ah, it's actually the reporter's opinion, but they found a pundit who will say it. I mean, it's you know, so like, but no, but I, yeah, but I think it's something we're thinking about all the time. We have found people really like the format and really like what the format is doing in terms of saying like, here, this is the factual part, but this is a sophisticated reporter who's been on this beat for a long time. They are in fact an expert. They don't need to quote an expert, although they can. And like, I'm interested in what they think of all this stuff they gathered. But they should know the difference between facts and opinions. And and I think that spirit, it really like is imbuing everything we do and exactly the way it expresses, I'm sure, will keep evolving. The deal you're saying you're making with reporters, which is like, you get the best of the newsroom, but you're going to be a brand unto yourself. If you go all the way to the top sub stackers or the top YouTubers, or even in odd ways, the top people on Twitter, they make a lot of money, right? Like being a, a full-on influencer on a social platform can be a very lucrative move. Are you doing anything to address that disparity? Come on our platform, be the star, be the face, and we're going to pay you industry standard reporter rates? Or are you going to say, hey, there's a rev share here. Hey, there's unlimited upside here in this deal. I think we pay competitively, for sure. And we, there's also, I mean, we're a startup, and so people have equity. But I, I agree with you, that's a challenge. Although I think when you, when you talk about the top sub stackers, 
there's very few like reporters who break news in that tier, not zero. I mean, Heather Cox Richardson, who I think is the top stacker, is this brilliant American history professor who writes an essay every night. It's not totally comparable to what we do. Yeah. Uh, you say you have equity that implies that there will be an exit that makes that equity worth money. You just experienced the chaos of BuzzFeed's equity. Is that a good deal to be making? Are people buying that there's going to be a meaningful exit here? It's a good question. Yeah, I think I think people are. But though, honestly, I don't think I have not found the journalists mostly are making career, and I never did making career decisions based on and maybe they should. We all we all should be thinking <laughs> think more about our long term. Particular, we should all be thinking more about our long term financial prospects. But yeah. I think, in fact, many of us enjoy the work. Do you have venture money in the company? No, and that is actually something that you know a lesson learned for me. I just think it's it's this isn't an industry that ought to be promising, you know, massive returns on a four year timetable. Like it's just, I mean, Justin and I have told us each other and told investors and told everybody that we feel that we. You've sort of made a commitment for 10 years. And maybe, you know, I just don't think that it's, it's just not a, the thing we're building, we just can't build that fast. Yeah. But there's an exit on the, in the books, right? You, you I don't know. I'm six, gonna... I mean, honestly, you know me, like, I don't think about yeah. that. I just, I just genuinely don't think about this stuff. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause when you say equity, like it comes with a, now, especially just a host of baggage accompanies that word. Cause hmm. you know, right before we start talking, I went and looked at Buzzfeed stock price and I thought, boy, it would have been better to sell the company to Disney, right? Like, as opposed to go on this adventure. No, I mean, I think, you know, that's something, I mean, that, that you know, because we published that chapter as an excerpt in Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. so it's been kicking around. And, right, I mean, I think if you look at the sort of dollars and cents of it, I mean, this has to be like one of the dumbest decisions in <laughs> the history of American business. And I was certainly telling Jonah we shouldn't sell. And if you're thinking about shareholder value, if you're thinking about any normal thing. It was an idiotic decision in retrospect not to sell. I mean, we, you know, I think, you know, it was a moment when people like Jonah were looking at Mark Zuckerberg's refusal of Yahoo's money, which looked like the most brilliant decision of that era, you know, and we're looking at all these arrows pointing up into the right. I think, you know, I think any business person who looks at any of these companies now thinks, oh, well, they should have, they obviously should have sold. I mean, I, I, myself personally, like remain because, you know, I'm an idiot ambivalent about it because, you know, we'd been doing it for a year and a half. We were doing all this exciting stuff. We felt like we were just really getting our stride and getting traction. Then did a lot of independent journalism that I'm really proud of for, you know, I was there for another six years and other people after me. And, and I think the core mission at Disney would have been helping ABC News and Disney modernize and get onto the internet, like a totally appropriate and worthy project, but I would have been terrible at it and hated it. What do you think about Semaphore when you were launching it, when you were pitching it, a lot of the focus was on how global it would be, yeah. right? That there's this ill-served audience of young, sophisticated people around the world, and they don't have a news source that they can trust. Are, how are you making money on them? Are you, are you selling them subscriptions? Are you putting ads in front of them? So right now, advertising and events are how we're making money. And I actually want to, I think we didn't explain this perfectly when we launched. And we are in this situation where we have this very long-term ambition to be global. But we're also experienced people who have some experience with biting off more than we can chew in the past yeah. and don't want to do that again. At least I have that experience. And so we launched in two places, in the US and in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think if you look at our Africa coverage, which by the way, like you probably won't if you aren't really interested in Africa slash live in one of, you know, in, in particularly Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, like that's who it's for. You'll see like we're really trying to produce something that is not for everybody in the world. And I think our version of globalizing is to build a platform where you have great high quality journalism 
for a number of different places. We don't imagine that that's all the same place. I mean, I think there are really interesting, valuable dynamics in being good about reflecting how different the views are from these different places in the journalism and not trying to resolve the differences, but sort of exposing them. Um, and that's and, and but I and the first place we we did that at launch was was this sub-Saharan African regional edition that Yinka Adegoke is editing. Um, but yeah, that's our theory of it. Do you think that as you expand that model, that the economics in each of your regions will be the same? This is always the question we had. Is oh no, of course yeah. not. I think you could totally imagine that in some region, paywalls are what you do, and in others, it's almost entirely events. I mean, I think I do think, and this is something that drew me to Justin, and that we totally agree on that. People are way too ideological about the news business. It is a tough business. Mm -hmm. You have to execute incredibly well. And you can't go thinking that like one kind of dollar is like advertising dollars are ethically pure and subscription ones are tainted or vice versa. Like you should just do the journalism and, and build a business around it. As you think about that and being flexible and how you grow, you've had the BuzzFeed experience. What is the dependency that you're the most worried about right now? Oh gosh, I mean, I you know, we we aspire to be in a place where we have dependency of that scale. You know, there there isn't we we are not it's not as simple a world. It's not a sort of single channel yeah. world anymore. I mean, certainly right now, many many media companies, you know, are are, are sort of going to have to navigate an ad market that's heading into a recession, a place we've probably both been before, and the ad market is cyclical. And I don't think that's not like sort of a dependency in the classic sense, but I do think it's something everybody's sort of girding their loins for. Are you measuring how many of your readers are like loyal readers versus how many are bouncing in off of uh, Twitter or whatever? Yeah, we're you know, certainly measuring our web traffic, but I think we're viewing the web as like my primary goal with the website is to get you to sign up for an email. Yeah. Why do you think email endures? Right. It, it's in many ways the the weirdest of all the mediums. It's the most limited, of course. You know, I actually think part of the reason that people like it right now is because of its limitations. I mean, editing for email is so interesting because it really is like print. There are design yeah. limits, there are word limits, there are font limits that drive me nuts. But it does force you to swing. Nobody, I don't think print is exactly going to come back in some sort of bespoke places maybe, but print values, which is to say like hierarchy, concision, aggregation, like these things that went out of fashion, I think are <laughs> things now that people are like, no, no, please do tell me the most important thing first. Do you think that's generational? Do you think that's the millennial audience has now grown up and they got some money and they've experienced this weird unbundled atomic news and they're like, can someone just do the work for me? I think it's more like culture changes and reacts against the last thing. And I, I, I'm not as, I don't like really buy these profound cleavages between generations. Like younger people sometimes are a different place in their life and want different things from older people. But I think the sort of subset of obsessed news consumers maybe aren't that different from each other. We got to wrap up here. We're entering a very strange news cycle with this election. It's going to be two very old people running for president. That seems very clear to me. There's a line in the book, right? I think it's Jonah pitches you to come run BuzzFeed News, or he's thinking about doing it. And the claim is that great news organizations are made in presidential election cycles. So BuzzFeed News is rushed out to this. I will tell you that I was the managing editor of Vox.com, and we kicked that thing off to go hit the, to go hit the next one. Uh, it was real. It was, it was yeah. very real for us. 74 is a new news organization. It's coming up on a yeah. presidential election cycle. The media industry as we know it, I mean, that's what this whole conversation has been about, right? The end of the social platform era is here. God only knows what role Twitter will play in this election. Tucker Carlson has been fired. Don Lemon has been fired. The CEO of Univer NBC Universal has been fired. What does this cycle look like for you? 
So, I mean, certainly, you know, we will, we're going to cover the hell out of the presidential campaign and Dave Weigel and Shelby Telcat and Benji Sarlin and others are very, very focused on it. And I think media is always very much part of presidential politics. And so I do think our identity and everybody's identity will be shaped around it to a degree. I actually do think that this is a more American presidential politics. It's not 2016. It's 2012. It's more 2012. I mean, I think many reasonable people will be panicked about Donald Trump and very, very focused on him. I don't think we're in a moment of sort of all-consuming interest in politics, whether you like that or not. I mean, I fundamentally think healthy countries do not, health, citizens yeah. of healthy countries do not wake up every morning and think about politics. Like it's a sign of a real social disaster that when everyone is obsessed. Yes. Um, this was an Ezra Klein thesis that I always found very compelling as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally, and so, and, and it is interesting, like the dramas you mentioned have been, and the, and the biggest stories of the last six months have not been about politics, sort of to my surprise. It's been Silicon Valley Bank. It's been SBF. It's been Tucker. It's been media. It's been, it's been, and it's been AI. And I think the presidential campaign will, like the way I'm thinking about coverage a little bit is, oh, it's actually going to maybe be most interesting when it crosses into those spaces. Because I think watching Donald Trump and Joe Biden kind of trudge toward confrontation sort of inexorably is not, <laughs> is, is, is tough to watch. Uh, one thing that really struck me in the last cycle was Donald Trump and Joe Biden both had the same position on Section 230, which is that it should be repealed, which is just a blunt instrument, right? They're just saying- A thing no, one, will, a, a thing uh, no one actually thinks. Right. But they're like, we'll just we'll just wield this weapon until Facebook adjusts its moderation to our favor or we'll threaten them with an existential risk. I mean, that's that's all they were doing. And that's why you end up in the same position. At least that makes sense. Right. They're like, all right, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, how would you like to wield leverage over Mark Zuckerberg? Say this incantation and you will have this leverage. I think they get it. They're political operators. I have no idea how they're going to think about A.I., Right, like there's not yeah. a mechanism in there that let, makes the same. Let me kind let of me sense. slightly argue with your last point, which I always thought it was as sort of somebody who can't cover politics. I always thought it was insane and ludicrous that tech that tech journalists and techies thought it was inappropriate that the government regulate a business, <laughs> and that it was like well, some kind of evil coercive threat when a politician said you shouldn't do this. <laughs> like, no, that's politics. It's and, and also it's going to be super partisan, insane politics. And that's the, the world every other business has navigated through all of history in every country. And there was this weird idea that like, no, like Facebook shouldn't have to face pressure from politicians. Anyway, <laughs> um, that's put that aside. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's an important reason that the pressure looked the way it did, right? Because everything else is blocked by the First Amendment. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The 230 is this quirky, specific thing. Um, no, I, I mean, I think there, you know, I do think that like the sort of notion that, you know, these guys in Washington are too dumb to get AI or whatever is sort of overstated. There are lots of smart people thinking about policy. I do think like the partisan polarization in the United States makes it very, very hard to pass anything. And so I'm sort of pessimistic that that Washington will do much until, unless and until there is some high profile disaster probably involving teenagers. Chatting through this, you have just a very pragmatic view about all of these things. You're a realist. Yeah. I think you, you've you've gotten some scars that uh, make you less prone to hyperbole than others. But I look at what's happening to Fox News and to CNN to some extent. I look at 
the future of the cable industry writ large and where Gen Z attention is going. And I say, oh, the center of American politics has been cable news for at least my lifetime. Incredible. I thought it would have been gone by now and it's still here. And BuzzFeed it's still news here. Is does, gone. does it have a life? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I guess my view on this has also evolved and gotten more complicated. I mean, one of the reasons that cable news remains so important is because it generates all this money, which it pays to political actors like yeah. Tucker Carlson. Like if you could pay Tucker Carlson $20 million a year, then you would be more relevant politically, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it's circular, but it's, <laughs> I got to start they, they, you know, these sort of slowly decaying business models. Uh, the president of a cable network told me a little while ago that he believed his, that, that he was okay because his network was melting in the shade. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, it's <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. How much longer are we going to have to put up with cable news? Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, I hate to say this, but I want, cause I am, I wonder if it didn't actually, Survive has, I mean, maybe the last decade of the internet was the true existential threat to that kind of media, which is to say, sort of theatrical, polarizing, you know, live television. And that now, as, as, as streaming looks more and more like TV, and the transition yeah. to streaming just is sort of turning us back to television, essentially, those channels won't just sort of make the leap. I always thought that if you view cable news through a very different lens, you just sort of have very long podcasts that are designed to be cut up for Twitter. And that is, that's this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what we're making. And like the re realization that that's what they're making actually makes you see it differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it all about towards... the clips. It's all about your viral confrontation with Chris Best. Classic <laughs> cable news moment. Uh, so let me ask you about that. Not about Chris Best, but the thesis of Substack and all the others is that we'll have subscription media. We need a new kind of media that's better than the partisan warfare that the social platforms have enabled. And I hear this all the time. You are a new media entrepreneur. This is exactly the sort of pitch that you could be making to raise money, gain customers, right? Like you're going to be smarter if you read Simon Four because we're outside of the noise and we're going to send you a print quality email every couple of days. I look at Fox News and I'm like, well, that's a subscription product. At the end of the day, yes. people pay a lot of money to get Fox News in their home and they love it. They love it the most. And the economics of the business did not make it any less polarizing or crazy or any less driven by social media than your average free product that is totally ad supported. Do you think that recognition exists anywhere inside of Fox News that they're as driven by the whims of social media as, as BuzzFeed once was? I don't think self-awareness is really their specialty <laughs> over there. But I do think, again, it's like, I mean, one of the interesting things about Fox is, you know, they did try to launch a subscription streaming service called Fox Nation that bombed. And I think it's, you know, both their strength is that they have all these people who have cable packages. And by the way, we're in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like the audiences of these cable networks are really quite old, and Fox is the oldest. And it's folks who navigate to the channel by speaking out loud to their remotes. And so it's not people who, if you say, you know, if Tucker Carlson says, hey, come download my app and join me in this new place, it's a very tough audience to pull over to that new place. Yeah. I will say that I once installed the Blaze app on a family member's television so they could watch Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Beck. And I, Glenn Beck. Glenn, I'm sorry. Sorry, so they could watch. So you've forgotten his name. All, no, that's, all, that's it. All. He was the most powerful broadcaster in America and you get him confused with some other blogger. <laughs> all right, maybe that's That's what happens when you give up your cable I news I couldn't perch. tell if I was doing a service or I was furthering <laughs> the decline of the nation is the point that I was like, I'm doing a nice thing for an older person 
Also, I think I should burn their TV <laughs> to the ground. Like, I'm not sure this is great. We got to wrap up. We, you're going to be much more time uh, than I deserve. I appreciate that. What's next for Semaphore, right? You're entering this crazy cycle. The media is reorienting itself. How do you see the next turn? What's the next thing you need to build or what's the next insulation from change that you need to impose? I mean, I think we're really, you know, we just launched and we're really focused on just sort of like making it making it better, making the product better, making the events, which we lo- are in love with better and doing a lot more of those. Yeah. Uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Was, we should just hang out more often. Thanks, Neil. This was fun. Thanks again to Ben Smith for taking the time to chat on Decoder today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I do check that email. Or you can hit us up directly on Twitter and TikTok at at DecoderPod. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Jackie McDermott and edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.